Today's sermon comes from Isaiah, chapter 48, verses 12 through 22. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Assemble, all of you, and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me, and his spirit. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments, that your peace would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand, and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth, say, The Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Church, Isaiah 48 is a a summary passage from chapter 40 to 47. <clears throat> and this is, uh, pardon me, <clears throat> uh, an absolute chapter of chaos. And what we'll notice here is that Israel's life is in this state of exile, that God's going to bring in a foreign army to bring them relief. And God's going to do things that is going to blow their mind, but they can't see the big picture. And in the middle of all of this, there's chaos swirling around them. And what we're going to notice is that God is working through patterns. He's teaching them about himself, and he is teaching uh, them about their own sins. And so I'm going to pray for us briefly uh, as we turn our attention to the Word. But my hope for us is that we don't miss the patterns here, that we don't miss what God is telling us in the middle of life's chaos. Let's pray. Father, you're good to us. Your word is a lamp to our feet and light to our path. Help us to learn from Israel's mistakes. May we uh, see how you are working things and events in history to guide us in the path that we should go. And ultimately, Lord, no matter where we go, uh, you will be with us by your spirit. Help us to be sensitive to your spirit. Help us to trust you and to see that you are the giver of all good things. What comes to this life is chaos, but make us steady. In the midst of that storm, by your mighty hand, Jesus, we pray your name. Amen. Between a rock and a hard place was where the police found the Amazon delivery driver at the Boulder Point Golf Club in Boulder, Colorado. What happened was the Amazon delivery driver was on his route. He was intently following the directions inside of the GPS. <clears throat> he had never been to this golf course before. And what he found was that he had no clue where he was going, but... If he just trusted this GPS system, he would be able to deliver his package and everything would be good. What he didn't realize, though, is that he had veered off path and he was driving down the golf cart path. 
heading to the back nine. And what happened was he was following so closely and he was so narrowly focused on these bad directions, he didn't realize that he was driving under a rock tunnel that was going to bring him to the back nine. And he wedged his Amazon delivery truck inside of this tunnel. Thinking the GPS was still all-knowing and all-powerful to get this delivery dropped off, he just hit the accelerator a little bit more and really wedged this massive van inside of this rock tunnel. The police report said that they found this gentleman distressed, stuck between a rock and a hard place. They had to come and winch this driver out with the tow truck had to get the fire department to pry him out of this truck with the jaws of life. This was a massively embarrassing experience for this driver who was just trying to follow directions. He, he understood, he didn't know where he was going, but he was sinking his hopes into this failed directional system. We've been there. We've been there in the chaos of life. We know these experiences exist in our life. We know how easy it is to get off course and to find ourselves in trouble. Israel was no stranger to this. Israel has seen a season of blessing and then over the decades has where we find it now in our text. They're in this, this massive season of chaos and brokenness. They are stuck between a rock and a hard place. They're longing and looking for hope. Israel had this slow decline from blessing to ruin because they were paying attention to the directions of the world and they weren't listening to God's clear directions laid out for them and given to them for their lives. And it begs the question, we see these patterns in our life. We see situations where five years ago, that friend, that marriage, that Business was in a great place, and then now looking back, things are absolutely destroyed. How do we get there? It begs the question why in the world is life so challenging? How do these small deviations turn into these massive disasters? Our text tells us two reasons as to why life is so chaotic. Number one, we minimize our sin. Number two, we minimize our Savior. We minimize our sin. We minimize our Savior. Let's see how we minimize our sin. Look with me at a couple of verses. It's going to be a little different today. We're going to, we're going to hit a bunch of verses at one time to see a pattern, all right? Look at verse 12. Here God saying, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I call. Verse 14, assemble all of you and listen. Verse 16, Draw near to me and what? Hear this. You notice a pattern. The pattern is clear here. Israel struggles with listening to God's direction. But you may have experienced this with friends, coworkers, kids. They can hear what you say, but it doesn't affect them. It doesn't affect their outcome. The Hebrew word that God is using here is to diligently comprehend. That's what this Hebrew word means. It's much more than just going in one ear and out the other. It's sinking it in and let it change the core of who you are. Why? Why is God repeating this instruction of listening over and over to his people? 
Because God knows that he's in control of all things. And he knows his work for his people, people's lives is the antidote to their sin. It's the antidote to chaos. It's the antidote to brokenness. The reason why God is constantly saying this over and over is because sin tricks us to slowly thinking that we know better than God. And what happens over time, we get into really painful circumstances. Now, if you surveyed Israel during this time, you said, hey, let's, let's talk for a second. Do you think you know better than God? What do you think Israel would have said? Absolutely not. They would have said, no, no, no. The Lord our God, Lord, is one. We'll follow him. We know God. Right? But that orthodox answer did not work out in their orthopraxy, meaning what they believed didn't work out in the ways that they lived. They said that they knew God. They knew the Torah. They knew the law. They knew all these things about God. They knew their history. But they weren't living out what they believed inside of their lives. There's a word for this. It's called nominalism. They were followers of God in name only. Right? In name only, they followed God, but their lives were very far from Him. Right? Their belief was, their confession was far from what they lived out in their lives. So, Israel began the slow deterioration, day after day, year after year, decade after decade. And what we see now, they've been abandoning God's clear instruction over and over. They started to follow the idols of the culture. They started to uh, commit heinous sins against one another. To, to turn their back on God, the one who's been saving them and loving them. They weren't passing on this love of God to the next generation. And after a few generations of living like this, their, their faith was like Ikea furniture. Now, don't get triggered, right? Ikea furniture nice. Like, you build it, you sit it there, it's great to look at. But what IKEA furniture isn't designed to do to be disassembled and reassembled. You take a couple of, of trips with IKEA furniture, you're going to start to notice it's going to fall apart. It's not going to look very nice. IKEA furniture looks really good if you just leave it alone. The problem with that type of faith system is that their faith wasn't able to handle the rigors and the chaos of life. We try to build our lives in ways where everything's fine and controllable and normal, but that's not life. Life is chaos. You get through one season of sickness, pain, suffering, whatever the case may be, and it's just going to happen again and again. In a few generations, their faith was like Ikea furniture. And over time, they became lost and broken and absolutely hopeless because their faith wasn't rooted in who God is. And God's revealed himself to us in his word. Dr. Dan Tuman did an experiment with people, and she took GPS trackers and put them on people, and then she took them uh, into a forest in Germany for one experiment, and then took another group to the uh, deserts uh, in the Sahara. And what she did was give them no GPS, nothing for direction. They just had to figure out how to get from point A to point B on their own. 
Well, things are going well when they can use the sunlight for direction, but on cloudy days, what happened was that people lost their sense of direction. People, uh, it's crazy. Every single person in this study, what happened was, they would start to get lost, and what they would do is they would deviate in circles. Small little deviations over time. And what she found through these studies is that when people get lost, they walk no more than 300 feet from the point of where they were originally lost. And they'll walk in circles frantically over and over and over until they just get out and die. She has this quote. It's pretty crazy. She says, in the absence of landmarks and boundaries, our head direction cells can't compute direction and distance and leaves us flailing in space. It's the exact same way with our sins. You see, if our beliefs, our worldview, our trust in God isn't rooted in what God has revealed himself to us in his word, what happens is we'll start to have slow deviations and we'll stray from his word. And then over time, what happens is we have the same sin patterns over and over and over that just continue to grow into varying degrees of heinousness. You start to get callous to God's way and you start getting more alive to doing it your way. The question is, how do we get there? How in the world do we get there? What do you think about something? I have been doing pre-marriage counseling for close to a decade. I have sat with so many couples, and in all of my years, never once has any couple sat down before me and said, you know what, I can't wait to get married because in five years, I'm pretty sure I'm going to have an affair, ruin my whole family, create massive trauma in my kids, and then ruin everybody around me. No one, as I'm doing the wedding, is at the altar like, yeah, we might have to re-up in about six months because I'm going to get sick of this person, right? No one, no one does that. But we see adultery, divorce, we see so much brokenness, how do we get there? Nobody says, I want to get a really good job so that I can overwork myself into high blood pressure and stress-induced insomnia and have congestive heart failure and then just give out. No one, no one ends in that place, but we see this over and over and over. Nobody says, I, I want to be friends with this person at work, but at the moment that they don't do something in line that's going to help me for promotion, I'm just going to stab them in the back. And I'm going to make my whole department hate this person and absolutely sabotage them because they're competition for me. No one would on the surface say those things, but I guarantee you, if we surveyed the room, everybody's got some version of this story that probably happened to you or you've watched happen in the lives of other people. The question is, how do we get there? It's just like Israel. It's just like Adam Eve. It's small departures from not following God's word that makes you callous over time. And then slowly and surely and deliberately, what happens is these little pixels of deviation, they start to paint this massive picture in your life of just utter brokenness. 
Let's take marriage, for example. Let's dive deep here for a second. You can, if you're not married, you're single, you're uh, in middle school, high school, whatever the case may be, just insert another relationship into this. We're just going to use marriage, for example, here. Now, imagine you're married and something happens and your spouse says something really hurtful, condescending, and mean to you. In these moments, you, you don't want to face confrontation. You might even be really holy in these situations and slap some sort of Christian cliche or, I'm just going to take this one, I'm going to cover this in grace, and I'm going to be at peace as far as it depends on myself, and I'm not going to, to start into this conversation. It's hurt me, right? My spouse is hurt me. So what you do is you bury it, and you cover it with the rug of Christian cliches. Your spouse never has the chance to repent. Your spouse never has the chance to be confronted over how they hurt you. And day after day, and week after week, and year after year, the same thing happens over and over to the point where you get treated so poorly, you are a shell of yourself. You're broken. You feel full of shame. Then all of a sudden, you go to work. And somebody hits you with a compliment. Like, you did so good in that meeting. Like, the way that you've helped us perform in, in last quarter has really set our company up for success. Your leadership is awesome. And then you just get hit with that little bit of adrenaline. Like, oh. And lights that fire in you. Someone's affirmed you and cared for you for the first time in years. You feel alive. For the first time, and you, you're just on cloud nine. You don't even know what to do with yourself, but you did them back with a just silly compliment. Well, you rocked that sandwich in the break room, yeah, and you don't know what to do, but you're just on cloud nine, and you go back, and you're just, you're so excited. Small little deviations start to happen. You appreciate those compliments. You start fishing for them with the person who gave you one. Over time, when you're not recognizing that you're slipping in off this terrible slope of attaching your feelings to somebody else. At home, things are getting worse and worse, and, and what starts to develop with this relationship with this coworker is you have a work spouse. You have all these microscopic affairs. You start sharing deep pain with somebody else at work that you're experiencing at home. You're finding that comfort in that other person, and you come home from work, and you're just like, I wish my spouse would treat you like that. That person sees my value. I don't deserve this any longer. So you grow colder at home. You stop working on your marriage. You stop trying to have confrontation. You implode. You give up. But you look forward to being at work with that person. Then there's the holiday party, the Christmas party happens. Everybody's excited. Everyone's there. Y'all been exchanging message on social media. You're having a couple of drinks. Your inhibitions starts to fall. Your favorite song starts hitting. Uh oh. Okay. You feel like you're back in community college, back in the day, just feeling alive for the first time. And then your work spouse is there, and you start dancing. You've thrown every inhibition to the wayside, and off you have a one-night stand. You've ruined your marriage. You've ruined your family. You've taken this relationship 
into your vows with your husband or wife, whoever the case may be, and you absolutely bludgeon it to death. And then you're sitting around and you're doing an after-action report, trying to figure out where in the world did all this go wrong? But it was day after day, season after season, of slow deviation of following God's rule for your life. It's this slow deterioration that Israel was experiencing that led them into full-blown apostasy, led them into full-blown idol worship. I want my God to be a little action figurine that I can have on my mantle. I want a God who's with me all the time in my pocket that I can see and touch and feel. And the Bible calls what Israel did against God adultery, spiritual adultery. And it caused so much pain. It caused so much pain. You see, what God doesn't tell us in this text is that life will be void of chaos. No, God reminds us that life is chaotic. God reminds us that we will be hurt by people. Sometimes hurt by people that share your last name more than any other people in this world. People are going to backstab you. But in those moments, if you try to pacify that pain with any other resource in the shed blood of Christ for you in that moment, what you're going to do is put up a little mini callus over your heart and over your soul, and then the pacification is going to grow. You're going to need that thing, that food, that drink, that stimulant, that depressant, whatever the case may be, over and over and over again. It'll only leave you in a hardened place. The question to ask is, how does God help me in those very real pixels of pain? How does God meet me every time this little pixel of pain pops up in my life from it turning into this massive 85-inch HDTV picture of destruction? Look what God tells his people in verses 17 and 18. It says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, he comes to them with loving language. He purchased them. He loves them. He saved them, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to prosper, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you would pay attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea, abundant. Your offspring would have been like the sand, and your descendants like its grain. Meaning they would have grown and prospered in love and righteousness. And their name would have never been cut off or destroyed from before me. You see, in every chaotic pixel of pain in your life, you have the Lord. Your Redeemer, the Holy One of all creation, the first and the last, who gives you strength, power, and purpose. To do the right thing at the right time. Look what Psalm 46 says. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Meaning God's not on vacation. 
or out sick whenever you were experiencing pain. God's not caught off guard when life gets chaotic for you. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth is away, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. What this does for us is remind us that every single instance of pain, frustration, fear, abandonment, loss, brokenness that you experience in this life, you have the God of all creation that says, I know exactly what you're going through. I know what you're going through. I've been there. My son came and lived exactly the same thing that you're going through, and infinitely worse. And he did it for you. He sympathizes with you. He knows you, and he sends his spirit to comfort you. Every time someone hurts you, every time somebody belittles you, every time somebody bears false witness about you, slanders you, every time something or someone lets you down, which will be regular, God gives you strength to engage with people in a loving way. Go back to that marriage example. You're loading the dishwasher, somebody's had a bad day, spouse pulls up, can you not put the bowl at a 42 degree angle and then put it in and put the tablet, can you not do it? Is it so hard? In that moment where you want to, like that's scary, goodness this bowl, that ain't about the bowl. There might be 37 years of childhood trauma that's coming out inside of this dishwasher. God's strength allows you to engage and say, hey, that's really, really hurtful. What's going on? Can we talk about this? Can we go see a professional who can help us work through this together? Because I'm seeing this more and more. Can we go get some help together? Can we bring in an elder from the church? Can we go talk to somebody who we trust and love about this and see if there's some help that we can have here? Right? What this also does for you is when you are the person who blows up, when you are the person who implodes and just walls yourself off from everybody and numbs your feelings completely, what God's strength allows you to do is to also turn and repent when somebody does come to you and says, hey, you hurt me in a way. God's strength in these moments allows you to not be your best legal defense lawyer and allows you to say, I'm here to listen. I don't understand why I do this. I, I want help. Thank you for your mercy and grace. I own the behavior, and I want to, through prayer, through counsel, I want to work on this. That's what God's strength helps you do in those little pixel moments of pain. And we're really good at denying that they even exist. Oh, well, that's just somebody's temper. Oh, you know how they get whenever their show ends. Oh, you know how they get whenever the game's over. Oh, you, you know, that's just what they do. Call it for what it is, church. You see, God's word for sinners is powerful. And God's word can be summarized like Jesus said, that the law is loving God and loving your neighbor. 
God's word helps us to live in healthy, God-honoring relationships, not codependent, toxic relationships, where we can live in unity with each other and God. And watch us live in that delicate balance of confrontation and repentance and that dance over and over. God's Word allows us to do that. Because God created us for connection. God created us to live in community. But a lot of times we're like porcupines in a snowstorm. Right? We need each other. But we start to, to hit each other. And we cause problems. This is why it's, important, why it's important that we not minimize God. So why we not minimize God in our life and relationships. Because when we maximize God there, we'll start to change. So, we ask why is life so challenging. We solve because we minimize our sin. But look with me briefly. Because we minimize God. Look at several verses with me here. We're going to do another survey here. And you'll notice a pattern. Minimize God. Look at look at verse twelve again. I am He, the first and the last. I am the last. Verse thirteen. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Twenty and twenty-one. Go out from Babylon, free from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. Notice a pattern here as well. There's a pattern of sin and not listening to God. There's also a pattern of minimizing how great and powerful God is. But when we start to understand how great God is in His Word, when we realize how tricky our sin is, our lives will start to take on a different picture. When we realize our sin is messy, that we are broken, and that God is great together and full of life, life starts to change. Notice the result of this understanding of our sin and Savior. Look at verse 18. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand, and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed before me. What's God promising here? Is God promising you a life free from chaos? Is God promising you a life free from obstacles, pain, and brokenness? No. What He is promising you in the middle of all that is you will have peace that passes understanding. Because your faith and your hope is grounded in the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the one who is never changing, who is always steadfast in His love, for his people. He is our constant help in times of trouble. And y'all, we need this clear guide. We need his direction to constantly guide us through the power of the Spirit that brings his word alive to us. Because our eyes, even, even 
when we're saved, is clouded by sin. Jacob Smith was a 15-year-old, is a 15-year-old, legally blind, downhill, free-ride skier. He's awesome. You should look him up after this. But he's legally blind. I want to make sure I quote this correctly. His visual acuity is 20 over 800. We've got some hard-seeing folks in here. Y'all might know how bad that is, right? Let me put this in perspective. He's four times over the legal uh, category for blindness. Take the big E on the I chart. You would have to blow that E up four times for him to see it 20 feet away. All right? He's blind as that. He's got a uh, tunnel vision really bad. He has no spatial awareness for anything around him. But he's a phenomenal downhill free-ride skier. How in the world does he get there? He trusts his family. He recognizes his limitations. His younger brother, they go to the top of the ski lift, and he's skiing down mountains where the chairlift won't even get there. So they're going to the top of the mountain, and his brother is helping guide him all the way up to the top of the mountain. And then how does he get down if he can't see? He's got a radio transmitter in his pocket right next to him that he has cranked up. And his father is at the bottom of the mountain with binoculars, calmly telling his children, his child, how to make it down without absolutely going off the cliff and dying. Notice, notice this his dad's quote. He says, it's on me to make sure I don't let him down. I have to guide him through narrow chutes to not go off a cliff. Jacob isn't reckless. He knows his limitations. He has the ability to ski anything on the mountain, but he's not going to do it by himself. He won't ski with anyone that he doesn't trust. So it is with us, church. We are blinded by our sin. We see dimly right now. And God is gracious to us to constantly guide us and care for us and protect us. But the million dollar question is, how can you trust God in all of this? How? Because right now I've given you nothing but principles and platitudes for you to follow. Where is the hope and the strength and the power at? Look at verse 21. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. Why? Why is Isaiah bringing the past into view for them to give them clarity for the future? He's reminding Israel through Exodus 17, where they were wandering through the deserts, they were grumbling, complaining, they were thirsty, they thought that God had brought them out there to die. And God told Moses to take his rod, which was a rod of judgment, and to strike something completely lifeless so that water and nourishment would flow from this. And millions and millions of people and livestock were fed. God would do this again 2,000 years later. When the world had seemed utterly broken, when there was no hope, when the promised Messiah was hanging on a cross in Golgotha, 
God allowed Jesus to be full of life and to be split and beaten and bruised and poured out for sinners like you and I. God is in the business of bringing life out of brokenness. God is in the business of bringing light into darkness. So whatever you're going through this morning, if you feel like there's no way out, if you feel like you have no hope, that God doesn't understand where you are, God, did you bring me to this place in 2023 to abandon me? me to be alone and broken. He brings you back to the cross. He brings you back to Jesus, fully man, fully God, pouring his life and blood out for his children to bring us mercy, life, and nourishment. The nourishment is to change your circumstances. The nourishment is to change you. To make you steadfast in the middle of some of the worst things that this life can throw at you. You feel abandoned, broken, backstabbed, lied to. The cross reminds you that Jesus knows exactly what you're feeling. And he doesn't leave you there. He says, come to me, all your heavy laden burden, and I will give you rest. How? Because Jesus rose from the dead and he conquered all of the brokenness and he gives us strength to live out of his resurrected life through the power of the Spirit. So church, do you see chaos around you? Do you see brokenness all around you? Is life not what you would have anticipated it to look like? Remember the cross. Remember what God did to bring you salvation. It was counter to what everybody thought that God would do to save the world. But God moves in ways because he sees the whole mountain. He sees the whole picture. And he tells us to live by his promises, not explanations. Cling to those promises. Understand your sin. Understand how great your Savior is. Father, life is so chaotic. Oftentimes we blindly go from one step to the other, not knowing where we're going, not knowing what's at the end, but Lord, uh, we're like those lost people in the Sahara. We are just wandering, trying to find what life is about. Father, you didn't leave us without direction. You didn't leave us without your spirit. You didn't leave us as orphan children. But Father, you've given us your word. Jesus has resurrected from the dead. Your spirit lives. It is at work in us and is in work of all of creation. The story for your church isn't abandonment and brokenness. The story for your church is living and Worshiping you in spirit and truth forever. Father, help us to see that you have written the end of the story and we have hope. May that future looking hope give us 
very present help and peace in our time of trouble. May we look back and see the ways in which you cared for us in the past, and would that also strengthen us? Father, help us to see that you are for us, that our story is your story. And the resurrection reminds us that it's one and happy ending. We pray this in Jesus.